The following is offered by Discerning Hearts, a 501 nonprofit Catholic apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation through the use of digital media. To download this selection, or to browse hundreds of other programs, or to contribute to our mission with a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, visit our website at discerninghearts.com. Ignatius Press and the Augustine Institute present The Formed Book Club. Catholic book lovers unpacking good books chapter by chapter. If you like us, please help us by subscribing and by reviewing us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might listen. And don't forget to sign up for weekly updates and study questions at formedbookclub.ignatius.com. Welcome to the Formed Book Club, where Vivian Dudo, Joseph Pearson, and I, Father Fessio, continue to discuss the spirit of liturgy by Joseph Colonel Ratzinger. Uh, we have come to the last chapter of the last part, chapter two of part four. It's entitled The Body and the Liturgy. However, this is the only chapter which in the table of contents is divided into sections, and there are seven separate sections. Uh, it's a long chapter. It covers elements of the liturgy which are very concrete and practical uh, and on which there are various opinions. Uh, so I suspect that we will not finish the chapter of this session. Nevertheless, I want to alert you to the next book we'll be discussing by Father Henri de Dubac, S.J., The Drama of Atheist Humanism. It's a long book. It's 500 and... 10 pages or so. We will not be going into it in the same detail as we have done with Spirit of Liturgy. So we'll probably be, you know, covering a whole chapter each session. But if you don't have a copy of this book, now's your time to get it. Uh, if you do, you can start reading it now, both because it's worthwhile to read and start early. And secondly, we might finish this chapter uh, this session, but not if I continue to talk about other things in the chapter like I'm doing now. Uh, even though I've lost my voice, <clears throat> uh, this is a chapter in which my underlining or my emphasizing has been different. Normally, I will put a little line to the side of the lines in the text that I want to emphasize. Sometimes, if I think it's really important, I'll actually underline the lines themselves. Well, there's many sections here in which I've done that. And, you know, since we have a captive audience in the sense that we don't know anybody watching or not, but we, we kind of decide what's happening on our own. I will, be, I will be giving more quotes this time, but I hope to have more response, too. <clears throat> so this begins on page 185 of the new volume and 171 of the old volume. And the first section is on active participation. I believe I've already spoken about that, the fact that the word first arose in Italian in a letter by Pope St. Pius X in 1903, December 3rd, I believe, no, November 3rd, I think, called Tra le Solicitudine, in which actuosa, participation attiva was the word there. In Latin, it was participatio actuosa, not activa, but actuosa. There's a distinction there. Ratzinger 
goes into that in this section. And a few lines down on page 185-171, after mentioning the fact that the phrase was important in the Council's Doctrine of Liturgy, and then it was repeated in the Catechism, he says, as he often does, he begins with a question, but what does this act of participation come down to? What does it mean that we have to do? Unfortunately, the word was very quickly misunderstood to mean something external, entailing a need for general activity as if as many people as possible, as often as possible, should be visibly engaged in action. Incidentally, I believe it's in paragraph 14 of Sacrosanum Concilium, uh, after which in that paragraph where it says we must encourage more active participation, the conclusion is the lady and the clergy must be better educated. No idea there was not to do more things, but to understand more deeply what was going on. So let's see how Ratzinger, who is probably as competent as anybody to comment on this, let's see how he proceeds. And so if we want to discover the kind of doing that active participation involves, we need, first of all, to determine what the central axio, there's active participation, what's the axio, is in which all the members of the community are supposed to participate. He's a typical rationer. He's going to ask a question. He's going to go down to the roots of things, to the basis, the origin of things, not, not just opine on things, but find out where these things come from. The study of the liturgical, liturgical sources provides an answer that at first may surprise us, though in the light of the biblical foundations considered in the first part, it's quite self-evident. By the acts of the liturgy, the sources mean the Eucharistic prayer. The real liturgical action, the true liturgical act, is the oratio, the great prayer that forms the core of the Eucharist celebration, the whole of which was therefore called oratio by the fathers. At first, simply in terms of the form of the liturgy, this was quite correct because the essence, here we are again, the essence of the Christian liturgy is to be found in this oratio. He goes down to say that, or right, or right before the next paragraph, oratio originally means not prayer, for which the word is prex, but solemn public speech. I want to pause in case anybody wants to interject something or intervene or interfere. No, I've got the first thing I've highlighted is on the next page. Okay. So the next paragraph on page 186-172. Oh, wait, but don't stop yet. Okay. The solemn public speech, and it's being addressed to God in full awareness that it comes from him and is made possible by him. We're not talking about a speech on the floor of the Senate. We're talking about God-originated, God-centered, and God-destined speech. Yes. Exactly. Yes. But this is only just a hint of the central issue. This oratio, the Eucharistic prayer, the canon, as we call it also, is really more than speech. It is oxio in the highest sense of the word. For what happens in it is that the human oxio and performed hitherto by the priests and the various religions of the world, steps back and makes way for the actio divina, the action of God. I mean, again, he's going to the roots here that the action of liturgy is not primarily our action. 
It's God's action in which we participate. And by the way, if you read the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it'll ask the question, who are the ministers of the liturgical action? And it says, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's kind of an interesting answer. Check that out. Top of the next page, 187, three lines down. This action of God, which takes place through human speech, is the real action for which all of creation is an expectation. Again, he always expands things to the cosmic view. It's not just something happening in our little church, our little chapel, or our little group. This is happening in the midst of the cosmos. A few lines down, the real action of the liturgy in which we are all supposed to participate is the action of God himself. That is what is new and distinctive about the Christian liturgy. God himself acts and does what is vacantly essential. You know, I, he, he brings the focus back to where it belongs, not to the periphery, not to some bland, you know, uh, opaque peripheral area. But to the center. But Joseph, you have something you have. Well, yeah, under- it's connected to that last part that you just quoted. But uh, you know, the, the, the real action in the liturgy in which we are all supposed to participate is the action of God Himself. So active participation is participating in the action of God. It's not doing things ourselves. It's actually, mm-hmm. if you like, subsuming ourselves to the to the, the sacred drama of God Himself, which is being played out in front of us, and that. That that's what active participation is in the deepest level, um, and you know I think he encapsulates it in those few lines. Right, and of course the say the uh, what is it that he's doing? Is changing the body and blood of the Lord? You know, changing the bread and the wine into the body and blood of the Lord. But it's also a few lines down. It inaugurates the new creation. The reason why this is an action of God is because only God can take what He's made. And now that's been tarnished by sin, clean it up and make it new with something we can't do for ourselves. And not just make it new, but make it divine. Yes. He takes the human tarnished by sin and raises the level of the divine. divine. And that's an action only God can do. Which means that our only only, um, response as regards physical activity should be, you know, on our knees, if not physically, then spiritually, the whole time we're there. Showing up and giving ourselves to him in total trust and surrender, that he's going to take us and change us into himself. Amen. Perfect definition of active, active participation. Well done, Vivian. 188 slash 174, just before the new paragraph, in the middle of the page. This just sums up what we've been saying, what he said. The uniqueness of the Eucharistic liturgy lies precisely in the fact that God himself is acting and that we are drawn into that action of God. Everything else is therefore secondary. Mm -hmm. And so when you have a liturgical committee in your parish, the question is not, how are we going to do liturgy? Mm -hmm. No, no. You want want to do it? You want God to do it. How are we going to adapt ourselves so that we can enter into something which is so much beyond us, we can't even contemplate it, uh, and therefore participate to the extent that God allows us to. Now, okay, after after laying down that foundation, making the important point, of course, he goes on external actions, reading, singing, 
and bringing up of the gifts can be distributed in a sensible way. By the same token, participation in the liturgy of the word, reading, singing, is to be distinguished from the sacramental celebration proper. So even though we see the two tables of the word and the Eucharist, uh, and the sacrifice would have no meaning unless there were words going on with it. Nevertheless, there is a centrality to the Eucharistic sacrifice in which the mere reading and proclaiming and responding to the word is secondary. We should be clearly aware that the external actions are quite secondary here. Doing really must stop when we come to the heart of the matter, the oratio. It must be plainly evident that the oratio is the heart of the matter, but that is important precisely because it provides a space for the action of God. Anyone who grasps this will easily see that it's not now a matter of looking at or toward the priest. So again, all his themes are integrated too. And here comes again, he's integrated the theme of how we face, what direction we face during the celebration of the Eucharist's prayer. Anyone who grasps this will easily see that it is not now a matter of looking at or toward the priest, but of looking together toward the Lord and going out to meet him. The almost theatrical entrance of different players in the liturgy, which is so common today, especially during the preparation of the gifts, quite simply misses the point. If the various external actions, as a matter of fact, there are not very many of them, although they are being artificially manipulated, multiplied, close parenthesis, become the essential in the liturgy, if the liturgy degenerates into general activity, then we have radically misunderstood the theodrama, God's drama, of the liturgy and lapsed almost into parody. True liturgical education cannot consist in learning and experimenting with external activities. Instead, one must be led toward the essential oxio that makes the liturgy what it is, toward the transforming power of God, who wants, through what happens in the liturgy, to transform us and the world, cosmos. In this respect, the liturgical education today, both the priests and the lady, is deficient to a deplorable extent. Much remains to be done here. That's his assessment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, can I, can, I, can I make some comments on those those last uh, that last section you quoted there? Um, first of all, the parentheses. <laughs> Normally, parentheses are not the most um, you know potent part of a sentence, but here that parentheses, I think is intriguing as a matter of fact there are not very many of them that that is external actions though they are being artificially multiplied and you said father um uh what i take to be uh either a freudian slip or a providential mistake um manipulated because yes. i think that a lot of these these um these external actions are, are go beyond what anything that was mentioned um in in the council um and they are being artificially multiplied and artificially manipulated in other words, they're being used for political reasons to undermine the authentic nature of the liturgy. So, um, and again, the word you hear me, I love it because he's normally so restrained, as you say, so methodical in his logic and his theology. Um, but you know, when he when when he when he sort of goes beyond that, um, it, it adds power because it doesn't do it very often. So when he basically says that when we do this, these artificial accretions, it's almost parody. You know, yeah. now, if something's a parody, it's not just um, abusing, abusing it, it's, it's subverting it. It's deliberately trying to, to undermine 
and destroy its authentic nature. I mean, when you start talking about parody in terms of liturgy, you're talking about the diabolical at that point. So, so again, I love that. And then, as you say, the last part, that the education about liturgy today is deficient to a deplorable extent. I mean, that for Ratzinger is normally so restrained and gentle and polite. You know, when he when he when he emphasizes something in this manner, you know, this is as close as he gets to being angry and that we should be you know, sitting up and taking notice. We'll return to the Forum Book Club with Father Joseph Fessio, Vivian Dudreau and Joseph Pierce in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me, to you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to the Formed Book Club with Father Joseph Fezio, Vivian Dudreau, and Joseph Pierce. When I raise my voice in anger, no one pays attention because I do it all the time. <laughs> when he does it, it's like a placid, you know, seascape. All of a sudden, you got a, a tsunami wave or, you know, a big uh, high tide coming in. But you can see why these problems are more pronounced in a place like the United States, where uh, the emphasis on doing is to such an exaggerated extent as opposed to being. And then go, what goes in hand in hand with that is all the noise. Because it's when you are still and quiet that you're just being and you're not doing, you know. And this is something that it, just in our society, we, we, we don't understand very well. We've got placed such an emphasis on performing, 
on doing, on getting stuff done, on making stuff, uh, and at a faster and faster pace. And we, this is something that we have a very hard time experiencing because we don't even understand what it is that we're missing. Right. And but I yeah, love in, this in, in a culture that does not know silence or stillness. That's you right. Know, that on the one hand, it makes silence and stillness uncomfortable, but on the other yes. hand, it makes it more necessary than ever. Now, That's the right. only time in the whole week we have any silence or stillness is when we go to mass. I mean, that, that's going to be so important to, to, to our health, spiritually and probably physically, quite frankly. And the reason why I love this little uh, expression of his on the bottom of 188, because it provides a space for God. It's not until we stop right. doing, talking, and believe me, I do a lot of both of those things. <laughs> it's not until I stop that I can really let God Speak to me, move me, inspire me. And that, and that, it was the genius of the God's revelation to the Jews is that their sacred place was basically an empty place. First, first, it was sacred; it was set apart. You couldn't do business there, as Jesus pointed out, you know, to the people selling, you know, animals there. But then you have the court of the Gentiles, and then after that, the court of the Jews, and then the court of the men, and then. The court of the priests, or, you know, and the holy of holies, and so that it, it was, it was a progressive emptying out of crowds, of noise, of you know, commerce, commerce <laughs> to enter into the quietest place you could get. And and again, what what's the point of the Sabbath? You emptied the Sabbath of your other activities. Why? So that you can be there. And recognize God, the author of all these things that you're appreciating. You know? uh, yeah. I want to say one thing, Josie, I, I read it and you referred to it about the deplorable extent to which the liturgical education uh, is deficient. Today, he says, I would say in the United States, that has been much remedied and partly because of him. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. But I mean, I, I know quite a few seminarians and, and you know, formators, as they call them, and, and professors at different seminaries. And I would say that the, in the United States, at least, the church formation is, uh, is quite good compared to what it was 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, so, and I think that's true beyond the USA. But and I think it is, you're right, it's largely due to Ratzinger and then Benedict XVI himself. And but I think it's not as bad it's, now as they were when he was writing. And they are and I think it, that. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> keep thinking. Keep thinking. Oh, go ahead. I think it also has to do with what is happening culturally in our society with people now being so fatigued of constant activity and constant noise. They're seeking uh, the sacred. They're seeking quiet. They're seeking silence and prayer. They really meditation because uh, this is just exhausting. And, and soul-destroying the way we're living our lives. And I think the pendulum is turning the other way. And now the, the fact that these books have been made available and the legacy of Ratzinger is here for the grasping, two things are colliding with each other. Yeah, and I think and the legacy the legacy and the fruits of the legacy, because I know that the parish I'm currently a member of is the best parish I've ever been a member of. And, and it's um, very largely young people the young families, many of whom are converts. I mean, this is in, in, in embryonic form that we change the world if this if, if if this is made manifest in other places. 
That's you know? right. And it is happening in other places. Yeah. Yep. Praise God. Mm-hmm. And thanks to Carmen Ratzinger for Benedict. So that's all I have on this first section, uh, which is very important because it places the emphasis where it should be on God's action and liturgy. Any other comments on section one? One more thing on 190. Yes. So this idea of being still, being quiet, letting God act, and then where he acts, obviously, his will is done. And so this beautiful line on 190, where God's will is done, there is heaven. Where there earth, earth becomes heaven, surrendering ourselves to the action of God so that we in turn may cooperate with him. That is what begins in the liturgy and is meant to unfold beyond it. Amen. Um, Father, before we start on the next session, the sign of the cross, can I make a request? You just did. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, as I was reading what Ratzinger was saying about the sign of the cross, I was very much reminded of one of my favorite poems by St. John Henry Newman, and it's short. As a, as, a, as a preface to this section, might I read it? Surely. Uh, Vivian is our, I would love I, to hear I, I don't it. want to speak on behalf of the woman. So it's only a short poem. It's wonderful. They say, John Henry Newman, The Sign of the Cross. Whene'er across the sinful flesh of mine, I draw the holy sign. All good thoughts stir within me and renew their slumbering strength divine. Till here springs up a courage high and true to suffer and to do. And who shall say but hateful spirits around for their brief hour unbound? Shudder to see and wail their overthrow while on far heathen ground some lonely saint hails the fresh odour though its source he cannot know. Beautiful. A lot of amens on this session. Uh, <laughs> so let's let's go to the sign of the cross. He spends quite a few pages on this. Inter- mm-hmm. You know, it's a, a very short gesture which we make, and it's a gesture we make at the beginning and end of prayers. Uh, Maybe begin- that's why it needs commentary, because it's something we just so easily do by habit, take for granted, and don't really think anymore about what we're doing. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> okay. So his first sentence there is the most basic Christian gesture in prayer is and always will be the sign of the cross. All right. Uh, And then he sums up what he's going to say on page 192 slash 178, paragraph at the bottom. Thus we can say that the sign of the cross together with the invocation of the Trinity, the whole essence of Christianity is summed up. It displays what is distinctly Christian. What is that? Trinity, the name of the Father, and of the Son, and Holy Spirit, and the cross, which is the Son's incarnation and passion and death, which, of course, leads to the resurrection. So it's all there on the side of the cross. I like the fact as well, if I could bring another literary illusion, that effectively what Dante does in that case uh, in the presence of beatific vision at the end of the Paradiso, and when he endeavors to, 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 to describe his vision of the beatific vision, he does exactly that. It is the Trinity, and it's the incarnation. It's the, some sort of vision of Christ within the Trinity. So the fact that the sign of the cross is both the incarnation 
and the Trinity is it really does encapsulate in one gesture, you know, not just be the crux of what Christianity is, but the beatific vision itself. Yes. Um, I was amazed to discover that this sign was already in Judaism. Yeah. That, page that's, 193. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but it was there as many things in the Old Testament as uh, blurred or, you know, uncertain image of what it really could mean. It's, it's like it's like in Exodus when they're bitten by the snakes mm-hmm. and uh, they're told, well, make a snake out of bronze and hold that up and you'll be cured. But what the heck did that mean to Jews at the time? Right, and to put it onto a pole. Yeah, but then when Christ comes and is raised like that, all of a sudden, oh, that's what it meant. Likewise, the Tao on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in the city. By the way, I think I've mentioned this before, but it's always worth mentioning. Uh, Gregory the Great has a commentary on the Beatitudes, which appears in the Divine Office uh, during Lent. He talks about blessed are those who mourn. And you think, well, you know, why should we be blessed because we mourn? You know, is that is that consistent with God's goodness and creation? Well, Gregory points out, what are we mourning for? We're mourning for our sins, the sins of others, the state of the church, and the state of the world. Mm-hmm. And so I've decided to make that my, you know, I, I can't check all the boxes on the Beatitudes, you know, peacemaker and that sort of thing. But I'm going to check that box. That's my box. Lord, uh, you, uh, you, uh. you said I'd be blessed if I mourn. I am mourning about the state of our society and the United States and the church. Uh, we just have a major prelate in Rome coming out and saying that actually we should change our teaching on euthanasia, that uh, it, it's acceptable. <clears throat> no, that's wrong. That's wrong. And I'm going to mourn over that. Also, the sign of the cross, when they put the blood of the Passover lamb on their lintel and yeah. doorposts, yeah. that makes a cross too. Well, that's true. So the cross, it turns out, is everywhere. And then he talks about the cosmos, too. I mean, I yes, just... Yes, I, did, I didn't know that until I read it here. And I had to go check our globe, which I got here, to, to verify that. But it's true that on a, on, a, on a globe, you've got this equator, then you've got this ecliptic that goes like that. And so it forms a, a key or a cross in Greek. So the very cosmos. We're being told that we're running out of time... Let's see one, one thing I'd like to say before we do conclude, I, I do love the fact you know, that, that we have the cross in the Old Testament, we have the cross in, in, in pagan philosophy and uh, you know, astronomy and what have you, um, and geometry. But right at the beginning of the section, because I just think this is ironic, bearing in mind the previous section about active participation, um, on page 191, about 10 lines down in this section, on the sign of the cross, to seal oneself. But I love that. To seal oneself, you know, it's not just something, some sort of mean that you know you're actually sealing yourself. To seal oneself with the sign of the cross is a visible and public yes, capital Y, to him who suffered for us. So the sign of the cross is active participation uh, in the external sense of the word, which he says is not important in liturgy. But I think in, you know we, we are publicly witnessing to our Catholicism every time we make the sign of the cross. It's not interior anymore, right? We're exteriorizing our faith and, and, and with that with that seal 
it's a public yes. And then on page 195, midway down there, this is the cosmic dimension. The cross of Golgotha, which is a specific place, is foreshadowed in the structure of the universe itself, which is discussed. The instrument of torture, torment, on which the Lord died is written in the structure of the universe. The cosmos speaks to us of the cross, and the cross solves for us the enigma of the cosmos. Then here's the key takeaway. It is the real key to all reality. History and cosmos belong together. And that's one of the things that happened after the medieval period. There was more emphasis, especially in you know, philosophical circles, on the essence of things, concepts, and so on. What is being? What is immovable? Uh, what was temporal and ephemeral was seen as secondary, which it is in a sense. But uh, Heidegger, you know, titled his most famous book, Sein und Zeit, Being and Time. And I believe that Ratzinger's emphasis here on the importance of history as part of mystery is a fruit of some positive developments that came after the Middle Ages in modern philosophy. Uh, and I, 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 but I want to conclude my remarks here with every personal thing which he says on page 198, Ten lines down. I shall never forget the devotion and heartfelt care which my father and mother made the sign of the cross on the forehead, mouth, and breast of us children when we went away from home, especially when the party was a long one. Beautiful Bavarian tradition. Mm -hmm. Good. Uh, so we will not start Brahma of Atheism next week. We will return to the last chapter and take up the section on posture. Thank you. God bless you. If you enjoyed this discussion, please help spread the word about the Forum Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at formedbookclub.ignatius.com.